Hey, so welcome to RUF. Um, if you were with us last week, you know that we are doing a series through the book of Romans, and we're simply calling it Broken and Beloved, um, because what we said last week, if you were with us, that the, the, the Romans is about working out what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Gospel is that word that simply means good news. And part of what we said last week, that we're going to unpack like why we need the gospel and how the gospel actually works the rest of the semester, but part of what we said, a simple way of saying and understanding what the gospel is, is to simply say, I'm so broken, Jesus had to die for me, and yet I'm so beloved of God that he was glad to die for me. And uh, But what I want to do tonight is I realized after last week that we really didn't touch it all in verse 17, and we're not going to go at this snail's pace like for the rest of the year, uh, but we are, like, I'm going to like definitely work out things that I feel like are crucial to understanding this book and to understanding God, yourself, and what the gospel is. So tonight what I want to do is talk about faith. When I say the word faith, it's interesting because it's a word like you've heard your whole life. Like faith is a word that we encounter a lot, especially if you're, whether you grew up in the church or not, if you grew up in the South, faith is a word that you're pretty familiar with. And yet if I were to ask you to define faith, what is faith? I bet we would get, my hunch is that we would get a lot of different answers, a lot of them very vague. And so what I want to do tonight is, is look at how Paul, really what the Bible says about what faith is. And so I'm just going to read it for us. Just those two verses again, you've got it on your bulletin. Uh, you can go there on your phone, or if, you brought it, if you're spiritual enough to bring a Bible, you can open it there. And we're glad that you're spiritual enough to bring a Bible. We love the Bible and believe the Bible. Uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Here's what Paul says. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes... To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And this is verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let me pray for us, and then I want to get into what I want to talk about tonight. Let's pray first, though. Lord, I, I pray that you would uh, quiet our hearts. Um, Lord, we come with restless hearts. And you tell us that our hearts will continue to be restless until we find, until our hearts find rest in you and find rest in the gospel and the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And I pray that as we think about faith tonight, Lord, that you would be the one that brings rest to our hearts, especially that we might rest only, only, only uh, in the righteousness of Jesus given to us by faith and by grace. Lord, I pray that you would uh, take my words, take the parts of my words that are unhelpful, and would you drive them, like, would make them like chaff and just drive them away. And Lord, I pray that you would take the words that are helpful and rooted in your word and are the ones that you want, you want us uh, to be planted in our hearts, that you would make them like oaks of righteousness that grow and grow and grow and bring out the fruit of what it means to belong to you, Lord Christ. Uh, Lord, you, we are desperate for you to do this in us. And with us, and we pray that you would. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> here's what I've been thinking about this week as I think about faith. And it's going to sound random, but here's where I am. Here's how I want to start. Uh, the question I kept thinking about, what was the first? So a lot of you are new to USC. So I was thinking about my own story. I went to USC, finished here in 2002. And I was thinking to myself, my freshman year, what was my most meaningful conversation? My first meaningful conversation as a person who is new to USC. And I'll be honest, it took me a while. 
Like, I was that freshman who went home every weekend, so I didn't really give a chance for people to talk to me. I roomed with my best friend. That was a disaster. We could talk about, I've talked a lot about counseling, and then we'll t- we could talk about later over coffee or Chick-fil-A, or we could take a walk. We could do whatever. But the first meaningful conversation was from a senior who, he, we went to FCA together, and he said, you know, can I, can I, we're in the same religion when in one class together, and he said, hey, next week, I'd love to buy you a, a, a country fried steak biscuit from what is now um, Einstein. It used to be this small, sad little cafe where you, really all you could get were these, like, country fried steak biscuits and sweet tea, and that's what he bought me, and it was amazing, mainly because the food wasn't that great, but that a senior took an interest in me was incredible. And I remember we were sitting in class, and he really just began asking me about how my freshman year was going, asking me what I thought about this class. I was really struggling in this class because it was sort of one of those classes that was attacking you know, everything I believed growing up. But it was this incredible, meaningful conversation. And I was reading, thinking about this too. Uh, if you were a student in Oxford in London, England, your first meaningful com- conversation would have looked very different. Uh, every student who's a freshman at Oxford has to meet with actually the chaplain. And I love this story. This guy named Tom Wright was a chaplain there for years. And he talks about when freshmen would come and meet with him, how awkward it was. And he was supposed to kind of check in with him spiritually. And a lot of them would say to him something like this. Hey, thank you so much for meeting with you or for, you know, for meeting with me. But you're not going to be seeing me much this year because I don't believe in God. And he said he sort of got this question so much that he developed a stock response. And he would say, oh, interesting. Tell me more about which God it is you don't believe in. And the, question, the student would be a little bit shocked. And here's what he wrote about it. Uh, he would say, this used to surprise them. Uh, they mostly used phrases. Uh, they, they mostly regarded the word God as a univocal, always meaning the same thing. So they would stumble out a few phrases about the God they said they did not believe in, a being who lived up in the sky looking down disapprovingly at the world, occasionally intervening to do miracles, sending bad people to hell while allowing good people to share his heaven. Again, I had a stock response for this very common statement of spy-in-the-sky theology. And he would say, well, I'm not surprised you don't believe in that God. I don't believe in that God either. At this point, the undergraduate would look startled, then perhaps a faint look of recognition. It was sometimes rumored that half the college chaplains at Oxford were atheists. No, I would say. I believe in the God I see revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. What most people mean by God in late modern Western culture simply is not the mainstream Christian meaning. I love that question. Which, tell me which God it is you don't believe in. And what I want to do tonight is to ask and answer, try to answer a similar question. I want, to t- I want to talk about, uh, tell me more about a faith that the Bible does not believe in. I want to talk about a faith that the Bible does not recognize or believe in. Faith, again, is a, a word that's super familiar to us. Like if you were, uh, maybe some of you uh, painfully had, were part of the faith fair. We had a faith fair two weeks ago, and you like went through the gauntlet of, of side hugs that is Christian ministry. Or maybe like you, you know, when you think about faith, you grew up in the youth group, so you think I'm supposed to walk by faith, not by sight. You know, you read Hebrews 11, and we look at the hall of faith there. Um, you know, faith is something that's, that's we've heard a lot about, and yet if I were to ask you to define it, it could be very, very interesting. If I were to ask you to define faith, what would you say? And here's what I want to do tonight. I want to kind of do two things. The first thing I want to do is talk about, I think, how we typically think about faith. And the second thing I want to do is simply talk about how we should biblically think about faith. It's sort of a, a pretty simple thing tonight. First, how we typically think about faith. And then second, uh, how we should biblically think about faith. Now, why is this important to me? Well, 
Paul uses the word faith 25 times in the first four chapters of Romans. It's a big deal. Like, you can't understand... I would say you, you can't understand this book, but more than that, you can't understand God, you can't understand yourself, you can't understand this thing we call the gospel that as Christians we say is everything. We don't have the gospel, we have nothing, unless you understand what Paul means by faith. But first I want you to think about how we typically think about it, especially as, as um, those of us who grew up in the Bible Belt. And I think there are two ways that we typically think about faith that are not helpful. Here's the first one. And these are totally from a guy named Les Newsom, who's super helpful here. Um, the first one is we think about faith in terms of quantity. So here's how that works. So we think to ourselves, if we have enough faith, then God will bless me. If I have enough, if I can muster enough faith or fill myself up with enough faith, then God will bless me. And so, like, today I'm driving, I'm one of those, I don't know what kind of uh, driver you are or, like, how you do gas, but, like, I'm the guy who chronically likes to test my gaslight. It's like a game to me where I'm like, I'm going to drive, and I kind of think I'm going to, you know, race the light, which is so dumb, because there have been times where I break down, like one time I broke down in the Kroger near my house, and I had to call my wife, and like, hey, I need you to come get me, because I ran out of gas. And so I'm doing that thing today where I'm driving to work, pull in, fill up, and I think sometimes if you think about faith in terms of quantity, that's how you think about your faith, that you sort of are looking constantly to come somewhere and fill up. And, and really, faith becomes synonymous with inspiration. So some of you are here tonight, and you want to be inspired. And if you're not already disappointed just from what, how we sing, you're not going to get inspired from me, I promise. Because I don't think that's what faith is. But a lot of us think about faith in terms of quantity. I need to have enough of it. Uh, which is why when I graduated high school, I don't know what, if you, I grew up in a church and grew up in a youth group, and I got an unbelievable amount of those little Bible promise books, like leather-bound, like, promises for uh, freshmen, and you would look it up, and you would sort of say, I need a verse on anxiety, and you would look it up, or I need a verse on, but the whole point of it was, I, I want, I, we need to go, you're, your freshman, you're inspired to live for Jesus, and that's how some of us think about faith. Well, others of us, though, think about it more in terms of quality. In other words, if your faith is strong enough, then God will bless you. If your faith is pure enough, God will bless you. And if you think this way, then doubt really does become the enemy of faith. Instead of what we would say that doubt can be, as, as, as Tim Keller says, it, the antibody of faith. That actually, when you bring your questions and your doubts to Jesus, it actually makes your faith more vibrant and strong and beautiful to the world. Um, but this is the kind of thinking, like, like, in the evangelical world I grew up in, we talked a lot about being on fire for Christ. And as I came in my freshman year, that's what I, that's what I thought I was supposed to do, to, to be on fire, to have a faith that was strong, to be a strong Christian, which is a phrase that I've come to hate. Now, I remember vividly being at the, uh, my freshman year, being at FCA, and uh, we were seeing, in context, I was in a relationship that I knew Jesus was calling me to get out of, partly because I needed to make that transition to college, partly because we were struggling. We were struggling and doing things that I knew I was not supposed to be doing, and yet I didn't know how to talk about it. I was ashamed to talk about it because here I was, this youth group hero, and I was doing things that if I let anyone know, this whole facade of who I was would just come crumbling down. So here I am, and I'm at FCA this, this my freshman year. We're in the Blatt. It's like 400 people, and we're singing, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. Over and over. And, I mean, like, we repeat the chorus what feels like a thousand times. And instead of me being like, like, 
get my praise in. I was like mad. I was that equal mix of mad and sad. Because I was thinking two things. Number one, I, I don't mean this. Like, Lord, I can say to you right now, like, I am saying this with my lips, but my heart is far from you. And I was mad, and, and I was also sad, like, Lord, how could you bring me to this lonely place, leave me here, leave me in this relationship, call me out of it, yet you know how much I need it. And I was just confused and sad and angry in a mix. And when you think about, and, and so, and I remember that same FCA, they did this skit that was sort of, the whole point of the skit was, I remember the, the, phrase, the verse was, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And again, I was sad and mad because I thought what they were saying is, Sammy, for the Lord to enjoy you, you've got to be the kind of person that's strong enough, that's joyful, that's living right. And what I didn't understand, what I've come to understand now, that the joy of the Lord is my strength because the beauty of the gospel is that the Lord has joy over you as a broken person and he's making you whole. And that's where the joy of the Christian life comes from. But when you think of faith, either in terms of quantity or quality, you can't, if you don't feel it, then it's not happening. God can't possibly bless you. And that's how a lot of us typically think about it. You know, the problem with this is twofold. Here's the first problem with this, if we think this way. The first problem is, this means your faith is actually in your faith instead of in Jesus. Your faith is in your faith. In other words, you've made your faith entirely about you, which is why sometimes when we're living and thinking about faith that way, when we share the gospel, here's what it sounds like. It sounds like to your friends, and maybe some of you are here, it sounds like this. Hey, you should become a Christian because if you are as smart as me, if you are as wise as me, if you are as spiritual as me, if you are as good a person as me, then you would, you would be a Christian. And so, of course, they, like, recoil in horror and, like, think you're either totally fake because you're not truly living that or they think you're just sort of condescending to them because you've made your faith about you. Your faith is in your faith, not in Jesus. That's why in verse 17, when Paul does that thing, and he says it in the ESV, the righteous shall live by faith. What's fascinating is that in the Greek, it, it comes across way more awkwardly. And it, it comes across like this. He who through faith is righteous shall live. He who through faith is righteous shall live. That's how Paul actually literally the awkward the sentence in the Greek. And what we do when we make faith either about a quantity or a quality of kind of thing, we switch the order and we switch it simply to this. He who shall live through faith is righteous. And when you do that, you've lost the gospel. And when you do that, you really have screwed yourself. Because you've reduced yourself to your faith being your faith instead of your faith being in who Jesus is for you and what he's done for you. The second problem with this is that there's this hidden assumption, and I really want to come after this hard tonight, so just bear with me here. The hidden assumption is, if I have faith, either enough faith or a strong enough faith, God will bless me. And the hidden assumption is that what, what faith is about is getting God to bless me. And what that means because we're sinful, is that we begin asking Jesus, we want him to bless what we want in our dream of a life that we want, instead of simply coming to him and saying, you're all that I have. Um, this is why, you know, most of us use faith as a way to get God to bless us. And this is, you know, the, this is so wrong in so many levels, and this is so what scripture is not about. Because God himself is our blessing, knowing him, loving him. Serving him, but this is if like this is why for me, when I watch like Christian movies, so think about like Fireproof, 
facing the giants. God's not dead. I mean, some of us, this is why some of us wish we had like 16 eyes so that we could hate watch and all 16 of our eyes could roll into the back of our heads because the assumption is this. If you have enough faith, your marriage will be saved and beautiful and glorious and you'll have 16 babies. You don't want that many babies. You'll have three babies. But if you trust and believe enough in God, you're going to win the field. You're going to win the game. You're going to kick a 100-yard field goal to win the game. It's amazing. Or, God, or you're, you're, going to, uh, you're going to have enough faith so that your atheist professor gets fired, which I'm not entirely sure. I haven't seen God's Not Dead, but I assume that's the plot. Um, if it's not the plot, you know, it might as well be, right? Uh, or, or he gets converted. He either gets converted or, like, fired and banned from the school. Um, but this is the deal. So this is why we love, this is why we love the first two-thirds of Hebrews 11, And we don't even know the last third. And I'm going to read it for you. Here's the last third. Those who live by faith. God's saying this is a beautiful thing. He says, some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging. And even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. That was not a, a cool thing. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all, listen to this. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive, did not receive what was promised. Why? Since God had provided something better for us. Listen, if you don't hear, if you don't hear anything else tonight, it's all we hear. Genuine faith is not about getting God to bless you. Genuine faith is knowing and rejoicing and believing that God himself is the blessing. This is why Paul connects Romans 117. Literally that last part, he who through faith is righteous shall live, is from Habakkuk. Do you remember the end of Habakkuk? Here's how Habakkuk, this minor prophet, ends his book. He simply says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, he's talking about complete and utter devastation. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread in my high places. How? Because God himself is the blessing. And faith is not getting God to bless you. Faith is grabbing hold of a God who loves you and knows you, and the blessing is belonging to him. This is the second thing. This leads to the second point. How we typically think about faith in a wrong, wrong, wrong way. Second, think with me just for a little bit about how we should biblically think about faith. In other words, what does Paul, when he says that word, what does he mean? And it's clear, I hope, that he means something different entirely than quantity or this whole quantity or quality thing. In fact, if he could say it, and this is what we're going to work out through the rest of Romans, is he is saying faith is entirely about, it's not at all about the quantity or the quality it's entirely about its object. That your faith is in something. That you and I trust, hope in, believe in, rejoice in something. Now, what I want you to see, like, because some of you are here and you're not sure what you think about this Christianity thing, and I'm so glad you're here, but I do want you to see that that means all of us have faith in something. Like, it might not be in Jesus, but we have faith. Maybe it's a faith in this sort of more secular understanding of how the world works. Maybe it's a faith in your GPA. Maybe it's a faith in a relationship that's going to save you. Maybe it's a faith 
is if we can have faith in something or someone. And Paul is saying faith has to have an object. Now, what this means for those of us who claim Jesus is that we're entr- that what it means to have faith is it means that we're entrusting ourselves to Jesus. Here's I want here's what that means. So Jesus is the object of our faith. What in the world does that mean? It means this. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. Where are you putting your trust? Where are you putting your hope? The object is everything. And, and so for us as Christians, it's not the strength of our faith that saves us, but it's the object of our faith that saves us. This is how I think about this. Uh, so I vividly remember, like vividly, vividly remember, the very first time I ever climbed into one of those Eno hammocks. So I was at Georgia Southern. I was there for five years, and I had never seen these things. And I have these students with their Chacos and their Enos, and they come out in the Sweetheart Circle, which is like the horseshoe, and they're setting them up. And I'm like, what is happening? What have I got myself into? And they're like, Sammy, you got to get in this thing. You like hammocks? I'm like, yeah, I like hammocks. They're like, you got to get in. And I'm like, no. Because I'm like, I'm, I am a larger man. I was larger at this point in my life. I'm pushing, two, pushing 240. I'm like, this thing is not going to hold. Like, there's no way this little, little thing is going to hold me. No way in the world am I getting that. And this is what I was thinking about. There are like kind of three ways to get into an Eno. All right, so some of you are like, hey, yeah, I love Enos. I'm climbing in this thing because I know, like, I love this thing. It's going to hold me. Others are like, I've been in it before. I'm pretty sure it's going to hold me. And then the third way, which was me, no way. This thing is not going to hold me. And I like, was f- kind of forced to climb in. Here's the whole point. Was it wasn't about my confidence or the strength of my confidence in the Eno. It was, act- it was about the actual strength of the Eno. That was the whole point. And so when I got in scared to death, it didn't really matter... The difference between me and the person who had like been in it a hundred times didn't matter because it was all purely about the strength of the, you know, was it strong enough to hold me? Yes, it was strong enough to hold me. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. Some of you are like, mm, yes, Jesus. And some of you are like, oh, Lord, help my unbelief. And I love the way that Sinclair Ferguson says it. He says that weak faith has the same strong Christ as the strongest faith. The weakest believer... Dear doubting believer, the weakest believer has the same strong Christ as the strongest believer. It's not about, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. Uh, in, in other words, what we're saying is you're entrusting yourself to Jesus. And, you're, and, and it doesn't matter if you entrust it with 100% confidence or 1% confidence. The question is, is Jesus strong enough to save you and to hold you? The second thing this means is that your faith isn't in your faith. Your faith, our faith, is in the faithfulness of Jesus. Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in the faithfulness of Jesus. This is where I love the way Les Newsom says it, that faith is like a windshield. The point of a windshield is to look through it to something else. And if you begin looking at the windshield, you're going to crash your car. The same is true spiritually speaking, because here's how you're going to crash spiritually. If you're looking at your faith, you're either going to become super, super proud, and everyone's going to think you're a smug person because you are, or you're going to become super, super sad, and you're not going to believe that Jesus could love you because you're a mess. And the point is you're looking at your faith instead of looking to, through faith to Christ in all of his greatness, in all of his glory, in all of his love for you. It's not the quantity or the quality of your faith that makes you right with God. It's the object of your faith. Jesus Christ, his life and death on your behalf is what makes you right with God. 
Let me just say, so where, how in the world does this apply to us? Let me say a few things. All right, so some of you are here and you're kind of suspicious of faith. Like you saw that thing in the state house about reclaiming like this lost faith in America and you just were like, ugh. Like, no. Like I've been around people of faith and like people who talk about faith and I know they're like full of it and they don't really love Jesus and all they want to do is get Jesus to bless their greed or Jesus to bless their racism or Jesus to bless their hypocrisy in one way or another. I want nothing to do with people like that. And I want to say like, amen. Like if Christianity is about getting Jesus to sort of look, to, to turn a blind eye to the thing, to the what he clearly calls in the gospel sin and sort of bless my idea of what God should do for me, then let the Bible belt burn. Like, let it go. Because that's not what Jesus is about. And thankfully in the Gospels, we see that the people that Jesus confronted were people who used, people who had faith in their faith in ways that led them to be sort of these, you know, celebrate themselves while at the same time marginalizing others. And Jesus is not about that. He confronts that. But can I just say too, because if that's you, can I just say, but is it possible that you do have faith in something? It's not like you're not a person of faith. You, you do have faith in something. It might, it might not be Jesus, but it could be, like we said, it could be in this sort of other view of the world. It could be in yourself. It could be in a relationship. It could be in a GPA. It could be in a career. It could be in a lot of things. Is it possible that you have faith? It's just not in, it's just not in Christianity. It's not in the gospel. So some of you are there, but some of you are here, and you say your trust is in Jesus, but functionally... You're, you're trying to get righteous. You're trying to get right with God. You're both, you're trying to get right with him in a very different way. So think about that phrase with me for a second. He who through faith is righteous shall live. Amen. But listen to me, especially if you grew up in the church, and the way you're thinking right now is, ah, Lord, thank you that I'm like such a better Christian than my roommate. Thank you for letting me come to RUF and get connected. Because here's what some of you were saying. This was me my freshman year. He who through not cussing is righteous shall die. He who through not drinking is righteous shall die. He who through not having sex is righteous shall die. He who through getting all A's is righteous shall die. He who through you know, going to church every Sunday, going to RUF every Tuesday, going to small groups every Thursday is righteous shall die. He who through anything other than Jesus is righteous shall die. He who through faith is righteous. He who through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is righteous shall live. Is your, where, the question for you is, where is your faith? Is it, is it really in Christ? Is Christ beautiful to you? Do you see yourself as a great sinner in Christ as great Savior? Can you sing what we just sang? And Lord, you know, I ask the Lord and understand what we're saying. That part of sometimes the way the Lord blesses us is, is a seem, He seemingly curses us. Because what He's doing is He is taking away those things, those other things that we're so prone to put our faith in. And He's placing our faith in the only safe place in Him. And some of you, this is the last thing I want to say in terms of application, is that some of you are here... And you're saying, you're, you're, you're barely here. And you're saying, Lord, I believe that, Lord, please, please, please help my unbelief. I have so many doubts. I, have so, I don't understand what you're doing in my life right now. I don't understand why this happened. And can I please say to you, if that is you, I want you to know something. 
that that prayer, Lord, help my unbelief, should be so encouraging to you. Because why? Because it's the best sign that your faith is not in your faith. Your faith is actually in Jesus. It's in a person. It's in a person who you know in your head, he loves me and he values me and, and he is for me. But sometimes he brings things into my life that are confusing and disappointing and maddening and so sad and tragic. And I don't, if we're being honest, I don't understand it. And, and Jesus, I want you to say that, that that is a sign that your faith is genuine. Because it's a sign that your faith is not in your faith. Your faith, however feebly, however weak in this moment, is in the faithfulness of Jesus. That even if you don't understand it, you know what Jesus is doing right now in your life. You can know this beyond a shadow of a doubt because of the cross. You know what he's doing in love for you, even in ways you don't understand. As he is stripping you and taking away everything that you are prone to put your faith in. Prone to put your trust in. And what he's doing is he's making sure that you only put your faith in the one thing, the one safe place in him. And he's saying, if you have me, you have everything. If you have me, you have more than enough. Um, let me close with this. So one of my favorite stories that gets at the heart of, of what faith is comes from this guy, Horatius Bonner. He tells the story of two Israelite believers uh, walking home from the nightly sacrifice. So if you know the Old Testament, you know that there were nightly sacrifices made where the believer, you know, believers would go and lay their hands on this lamb and symbolically transfer their sins, and then the lamb would be sacrificed on their behalf. It would, you know, it would die for their sins, so to speak. And it was a way of, of um, you know, doing what the Bible calls atonement, that where the Bible says there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And so they would go to these nightly sacrifices. Well, Rachel Spotter tells the story of these two Old Testament believers coming home from a nightly sacrifice. And one of the guys, they've, they've laid the hands on the lamb, and one of the guys just can't, he's just still full of anxiety. And he's thinking, did I do it right? And he's thinking, did, did I lay my hands in the right place? Did, did I have enough meaning? Did I have enough feeling when I laid my hands on the lamb? Did, did, I, did I lay them and did I keep them on the lamb long enough? And he's asking aloud all these questions and he's just spiraling and spiraling. He's got no assurance that God loves him until his friend says, My friend, I want you to know something. It's not about your hands. It's about the lamb. Were your hands on the right lamb? Were they on the lamb of God's own choosing? Were they on the lamb who takes away the sins of the world? If they were on that lamb, it doesn't matter how feebly, it doesn't matter how strongly. It doesn't matter how, where you put, if they were on the right lamb, your sins are forgiven. And I want you to know, it's not the quantity or the quality of your faith that matters. If your faith is in Jesus, the same strong Jesus that Paul is talking about here, all is well. And you are safe. And you are loved. Let's pray. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we praise you and thank you that that is who you are to us. We praise you and thank you that you did come and live the life we could never live and die the death we deserve to die for us. Because you love us, because uh, you want us, and we now belong to you. And Lord, I pray, uh, some of us are so discouraged, and I pray, Lord, that you would lift our eyes to look not at our faith, but to look at Christ. And Lord, some of us are, are proud, and I pray that you would lower our eyes. But again, not to look at our faith, but to look at you, Lord Christ, that we might uh, repent of our sins and that we might trust in you and in you alone. We pray these things in your name, Lord Christ. Amen.